All right, we're going to move into a time of preaching now. So invite you guys, if you've got a Bible uh, or a device, you guys can turn there if you want. We're going to be in Psalms chapter one, so you guys can turn there. This, uh, this psalm is entitled, or the sermon is entitled, The Light. Um, so we've entitled our, our new sermon series, Summer Psalms. So over the next 13 weeks, we're going to be looking at the first 13 psalms of uh, the book of Psalms. And over the next number of weeks, uh, we're going to be giving, I'll be trying to give just maybe some little tidbits of kind of intros or um things about the book of Psalms. It's a massive book, 150 chapters uh, in it. And so, or, um, and so th there's so much to it. And so I'm not going to give like a full introduction this morning, but what I want to do is uh, this morning as, as a way of introduction is just to help us know uh, how best to read the book of Psalms. And, and so as we come into each of these uh, chapters week by week. What what is the best way by which we can read it? Uh, and so, the the best way to read Psalms is to read Psalms the way that Jesus read them. And and so we can go to the New Testament and we can see how Jesus read the whole of the Old Testament, including the Psalms. And Luke twenty four is one of the places we can go. Uh, and so it says in Luke 24, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So what Jesus is doing here is he's looking back at the Old Testament, okay? The books that are considered law or Torah, uh, which also means law, um, the, the, all of the teachings, the instructions, the prophetical books, the prophets, the Psalms. He's looking back at all of those and he's saying how they are fulfilled. And then as he looks at all of those books, what he does in this moment in Luke 24 is he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. And what he's doing is he's teaching them how all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in and through Jesus. So as we read the Psalms, the most important thing that we can do is to see how these Psalms are pointing to Jesus. So at the end of the day, what we must do is we must find Jesus in these Psalms. There's a, a I think it's a great quote in, uh, it's a Bible called the Gospel Transformation Bible, and this is what it says. Reading the Psalms mindful of Jesus is not a clever way to read this book of the Bible, nor is it one way to do so among others. It is the way. A gospel lens to reading the Psalms is how Jesus himself teaches us to read them. As you read this portion of God's word, make these prayers to God your own and consider the ways these Psalms are good news to us expressing the full range of our emotions and ultimately bringing our minds to rest on the finished work of Christ on behalf of sinners. So one of the things we get in, in the Psalms is we get 
all kinds of different prayers that are expressing all kinds of different emotions. But at the end of the day, whatever is being expressed, the intent is to lead us to the throne of Jesus and to find our joy in and through who he is and what he has done, the finished work that Jesus has done for us as sinners, as rebels against God. So that, that's my encouragement for us as we read these psalms that we would really wrestle with, how do these psalms point us to Jesus? And so my hope is that you'll see it, that that's what I've done this morning as I preach this, but these psalms are going to get us to Jesus because the whole of the Old Testament, the point of it is to get us to Jesus. All right, so let's read Psalm 1 together, and then we'll, we'll work through this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, so the book, uh, or the beginning of the book of Psalms is really interesting because it just jumps right in. There's no introduction. So often with books of the Bible, there'll be some kind of introduction, this this letter is written by this person, it's being written to these people, but it just jumps right in. But in this, it's really helpful in setting a tone for the whole of the book of Psalms. So the first two chapters of Psalms are considered to be kind of the introduction of the book. And straight away, what we find we find here in chapter one is that it divides people into two groups, the righteous and the wicked. Now, we need to flesh this out because this whole righteous, wicked conversation is really nuanced, but this division is really helpful for us as we think about the whole of the Bible. This line in the sand is repeatedly drawn to distinguish people and to provide clarity for where one stands before God. We, we find this happening throughout the Bible. Now, throughout these verses, the wicked, sinner, and scoffer are referred to nine or seven different times. And we find this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And it's really pointedly drawn out in verses 5 and 6. The righteous are described with words like delight and prosper. The image that we get here when we think of the righteous is one of flourishing. The wicked are described with terms like chaff and that they will perish. This is very unenviable in terms of how we should view this. Now, now there's much to this whole uh, delineation between righteous and wicked, and, and we'll try to flesh some of this out as we go through here. All right, so the first word that we get in this psalm is blessed or blessed, okay? This is intended to immediately grab our attention because we, humanity, it doesn't matter who we are, we gravitate towards blessing. It catches our attention. It communicates the idea of favor or of happiness. And specifically here, what it communicates is God's favor towards humanity. So one of our first thoughts when we hear this word right away is, who is blessed? 
Who are the people who are blessed? Or how do we receive this? That's what we want to know. The natural inclination of our hearts is that we want some of that. We want to get me some of that blessedness. And so that, that should be, and oftentimes is, just our natural response to hearing that type of word. So then verse one continues. It says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. And we're going to come back and focus in on this man. But first, just some parameters regarding who and how someone has and has not experienced favor, because that's what we get here in, in the verses that follow. So let's look first at the negative statements. This is really kind of a weird way to think about this or for it to be communicated, because all these are uh, verbalized or communicated in a negative sense. So we have three statements here, and notice the progression of commitment. It goes from walking to then standing to then sitting, okay? So, so someone's becoming more cemented in these actions. So it doesn't matter our level of involvement. That's part of what's being communicated here. It doesn't matter our level of involvement. Varying levels of commitment in sin result in the same end that someone is guilty. So when Jesus died, some men were beating him. They were whipping him. They, they were putting the nails into his hands to put him on the cross. Some people weren't doing that, but they were spitting on him, or they were yelling at, yelling at him from a distance. They were mocking him. Others were just watching. They weren't saying anything. They weren't actively involved. They were just watching what was going on. Many said or did nothing, but they harbored hatred in their hearts towards Jesus. Many people weren't even there. They're like us today. We had nothing to do with actually putting him on the cross, except the Bible says we did put him on the cross. We are complicit in that sin. And at the end of the day, what we find is that everyone has sinned against Jesus. Everyone is complicit in this sinful activity. It doesn't matter if we were walking, if we were standing, or we were sitting. We're seeing a similar concept being played out in our culture right now as it pertains to racism. Racism is sin. Most people don't argue that. Not all people, but most people agree that the prioritizing of one race over another is appalling. The idea that someone's skin color makes them uh, more acceptable or better in some way uh, is horrific. Most people believe that. But more and more, what we're being confronted with, and, and especially people who have white skin or light skin, is we're being confronted with what complicit involvement is. That, that silence is viewed as complicit involvement, that indifference towards what someone else of a different skin color is experienced or has experienced in their life, that that, that is communicating a complicity in the sin against them. That, that just this reality of not understanding the experience of somebody else, that that can in some ways make us complicit in this whole dynamic. Now, now our involvement in sin can look many different ways, okay? And I, I'm just speaking sin in general here. 
all right? Our involvement can look many different ways. It can be active, it can be passive. Passive many, see, many times seems harmless to us. So think about, think about um, scrolling through social media. Many people don't think about this idea of scrolling through social media as wicked or sinful. And, and it's not, it's neutral. But what happens then in these neutral uh, ways of living life is that we tend towards sin, that, that there's just this natural pull for us towards it. Because what ends up happening as we scroll through social media is, is we'll see things that anger us. We'll see things that cause us to lust. We'll see things that cause us to scoff at other people or to covet what someone else has. As a kid, we might see someone have a toy that we want. And so we begin to covet that thing or, or a possession or a vacation. And so we begin to covet what somebody else has. And I was reminded of this verse in uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The, the deceitfulness of our hearts causes us to normalize our sin. That which once was thought as horrific, that we would never do that, can quickly become something that we are engaging in and that is normal for us. Our hearts are de deceitful. It, this also reminded me of Genesis 4, verse 7, where it talks about sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the doors of our hearts and just looking for any opportunity to attack, to sink the hook into us so that it can take hold of us. So whether we're standing, we're sitting, we're walking, the reality is when we are engaged in sin, even from a distance, we are complicit with it. So notice what's being spoken here. It's our involvement with sin, our adherence to wicked counsel, and our willingness to engage in scoffing activity against God and his design that causes us to reject God's blessing or to remove ourselves from God's blessing. Now, no one is against blessing. We all want it. What, when we think about our lives, we want to be described like the tree that's being talked about here in Psalm 1. We want our lives to be marked by fruitfulness and prosperity, to be filled with meaning, that, that we would be generous people and that our lives would be good for other people as well. That's what we want. Furthermore, we read in verse 2 that our blessing is connected to us always thinking about God's law even, it says here, even delighting in it. Now, in this context, because we, we talk about law at Center Church quite a bit. In this context, law is referring to God's teaching broadly, okay? So yes, it involves the specific laws that God has given to us, but it also includes all of the promises that God has made to us as well. It includes the teaching about his character, the fact that he is a rescuer who runs after people who, have, who are running away from him. It includes the fact that his love is steadfast, even when we are unloving. When we reject his love, his love is steadfast. The fact that he is patient with us, 
even as we're impatient with people, he is patient with us. The fact that he is just. So it includes all of these realities of who God is. So blessing is connected to someone considering God and his teachings and then living according to that reality. Now, in one sense, we should be drawn to this because the goodness of God is pervasive, drawn to the fact of delighting in the law of the Lord and, and uh, meditating, uh, meditating on his law day and night. But there's another side to this. When we think about God's law, we have to acknowledge that to keep God's law is impossible. And there are parts of God's law that are cold, that, that are uninspiring for us. So what Psalm 1 is doing is it's creating a problem for us. It's creating a massive problem. Blessing seems out of reach, if we're honest with ourselves. When I look at my life, I have to acknowledge I have walked in the counsel of the wicked. I have stood in the way alongside sinners and in sin myself. I have sat in the seat of scoffers. All of these things are true of me. And all of these things have occurred recently. I'm not talking about weeks ago or years ago. This is all very fresh for me. My involvement in these things seems relentless. And really, how often do we find ourselves wanting to sit and think about God's teaching, much less to delight in it. When you get to the end of a day, what we think about is turning on Netflix or whatever streaming option we tend towards and, and being delighted by that thing, whether it's a, a funny movie or something else. We seek to delight in kids' YouTube rather than delighting in God's law. To sit down and think about that law, God's law will make us giggle? We don't oftentimes do that, if ever. Or the fact that God's law will lighten our heart or that it will comfort us in some way. So, so when you read this with me, do you feel what I feel in this? Do you feel some of the heaviness, the fact that this maybe seems out of reach? For us, in one sense, I read this, and I have to acknowledge I'm not blessed. Because verse 1, I've, I've done all those things, and I continue to do all those things. And, and in one sense, we should. We should feel this. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So in a sense, we, we should feel tinges of hopelessness. We should feel the heaviness, the, the fact that this is out of our reach for us. So if we envision blessing coming from our, our own adequacy, we're wrong. We're not the ones who are going to conjure up 
blessing by our performance or adherence to God's laws. Through our own efforts, we will never be the fruitful, unwithering, prosperous tree. That's talked about in verse 3. We are chaff. Chaff is the dry, dead remains of grains. It is the the part of food that is removed. It is fodder. It is worthless. When we stand before God, this is what our human efforts are like. As verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The chaff will be blown away. Okay, so, so this is quite the start to Psalms, right? I mean, you, you may be thinking, I thought you, you were all about good news and you're going to offer us good news. You, you could turn on the news and get all this that I'm giving to you. Okay, so these verses, they provide us a whisper of good news to come. So let's, let's see how that happens. Verse 1 says, it begins, blessed is the man. So let's go back here. Blessed is the man. We've determined that there is no man, there, there's no woman, there's no one in humanity who is going to comply with what follows in verses 1 and 2 to be bestowed with blessing. So then we have to ask, who is the man? What's this talking about? And the first thing that comes to my mind, or that should come to our minds with, with this, and, and maybe a question just when you're reading the Bible at times, is, is to wonder about, is this speaking about specific men or like a representative? And this is speaking of a representative of humanity. The, the reference to man here is speaking of a representative individual for all of humanity. So when that's known, that it speaks of a representative, two options come to my mind right away. Adam, because he's the firstborn of all humanity, he is a representative, and then Jesus. So we've got to hold up in the, the bar of examination and, and look at both of these individuals. And when we hold up the bar of examination for Adam, what we see very quickly is he doesn't hold up well. He, he's not going to fare well at all in this. He, first of all, exposed his wife to the counsel of wickedness. Satan, in the form of a serpent, offered the counsel of partial truth. So the Satan, Satan comes to them in the form of a serpent, and he twists God's word to try and get them to do what he wants them to do, which is against what God wants them to do. This is Satan's MO, okay? The way in which he operates. A dash of truth mixed in with untruth. So Satan isn't necessarily concerned in getting us to think that there's no God. What Satan wants to do is he wants us to think that God isn't good, or at least he isn't fully good, for us to become suspicious of God. So Adam, he sat in the council of wickedness. He confronts the serpent. He hears this wicked council that's filled with some untruth or that's lacking truth and and then he stands in sin and he eats what god instructed him not to eat and then what's so interesting with adam in all of this he he gives us the trifecta in the the walking standing sitting because you know what he does after he sins and god comes to him he blames his wife he blames her he he is scoffing at his wife for the way in which she made him sin. 
It's ridiculous. Adam saw how the tree of life looked good along with its fruit. But in this, it caused him to wither. He became not like the Psalm 1 tree, not like the tree we want to be like. So Adam is clearly not the man connected to blessing in Psalm 1. But thankfully, the story of the Bible says that there was a second Adam, a better Adam, one that was referred to as the blessed one. That's Jesus. So in Matthew 4, Jesus finds himself, like the first Adam, receiving wicked counsel from Satan. So God's Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, okay? When you hear wilderness in the Bible, what you should think of is death and sin and barrenness, okay? So God's Spirit leads Jesus, and this is important. God is the one leading Jesus here. So Jesus is being led to Satan, all right? So, so the fact that God is the one leading him, we know who is initiating this. We know who is in control. So even though Jesus is going to be in the way of evil, we know that God, the God of love, is working in such a way to accomplish his good purpose in all of this, okay? So Jesus comes to Satan in the wilderness, and Satan is going to lay some things before Jesus. He's going to make some promises to him. He's going to seek to entice Jesus. But you know what's so tricky in this encounter between Jesus and Satan? Satan's wicked counsel to Jesus finds Satan quoting Bible verses. Satan is actually quoting Bible verses to Jesus in an attempt, an effort for him to get what he wants. Okay? So unlike the first Adam, Jesus recognizes wicked counsel. Okay? He understands what's being thrown at him by Satan. And he recognizes that it's not his father's voice. He recognizes that this is not good counsel. This is evil. This is wicked. And he knew that all these promises that Satan was making to him, that Satan could not keep those promises. These are promises that his father has made. These are promises that only his father can keep. Satan does not possess these promises. And so what Jesus does then is he counsels the counselor, the wicked counselor. He rebukes the wicked counselor. Okay, then we're going to fast forward here 12 chapters to Matthew 16. And in Matthew 16, we find Jesus in a conversation or an interaction with one of his disciples, um, whose name was Peter. Okay, so Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter replies back, you are the Christ, the, the chosen one. And Jesus tells Peter, Blessed are you. Blessed are you. So, so Peter understands who Jesus is, and notice how blessing is connected to this reality, okay? Now, right after this, right after this, Jesus tells his disciples that he needs to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, and that he is going to die for the forgiveness of sins. And then on the third day, he's going to be raised again. Peter hears this, and he's like, oh, no. That's not how this 
is going to go down at all. So he pulls Jesus aside and he, he tells Jesus, he seeks to rebuke Jesus and say, this is not okay. This is not all right. And Jesus tells Peter. Now remember, he just told Peter that he's the blessed one. Okay. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is driving home the importance of us knowing Jesus and knowing his instruction. The importance of us setting our minds on the things of God, delighting and meditating on who Jesus is and what he has done. Nearness to God is what allows us to know that which is good, which then allows us to know that which is wicked and that which we should not engage in. So this is all calling us to Jesus, to know him, to rest in him, to trust in him, to understand who he is and what he has done for us. Jesus is the blessed one, but he also says we are blessed as we know Jesus for who he is. So this is what we need to cement into our hearts. When we find ourselves impatient, we need to go back to the gospel and remind ourselves how Jesus patiently bears with us. When we find it hard to love one another, when we have someone who we maybe consider an enemy, we don't want to love a child who is disobeying us, or we have a friend who has stolen a toy or a sibling who has stolen a toy from us. What we need to do in those moments is to remind ourselves of Jesus' blood-soaked love for us when we didn't deserve it, when we were stealing his stuff, when we were trying to push him off of his throne. We need to remind ourselves of the anguished cries that Jesus makes for us to trust him, not to trust in our stuff, not to trust in money, not to trust in controlling our reality here on earth, but to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. What this all leads us to then, without us even trying to create it, uh, this fact of trusting in Jesus, knowing him, meditating on his instruction and his teachings, knowing his promises, what this leads to is our lives become like a tree that is well-fed, that is strong, that is fruitful. And, and notice what it says in Psalms 1, in Psalm 1 here. It says that it's fruitful or it yields its fruit in its season. I love that it says that here because you will have many seasons when you feel unfruitful as a Christian, but we need not despair. Jesus says, the Bible says that we will yield our fruit in season. So maybe it's not our season for yielding our fruit, but you know what happens before a tree yields its fruit? It grows. And what happens when we grow? It's oftentimes painful. At least that's what my kids tell me over and over. I'm having growing pains. Our growth, when the fruit is growing in our lives, when the gospel is growing in our lives, it will be painful at times. 
but we can know, we can believe that in the right time, that growth will bear fruit. So we will become unwithering, strong, watered, well-fed. Our lives will prosper in the way that Jesus wants us to prosper. So when we think of prospering, we immediately go to physical, material realities, don't we? Maybe it's just me. I'm guessing it's you as well. Well, I know it's some of you based on confessions you've made to me. So we, we go to material realities when we think of prosperity, okay? Galatians 5 says this is what uh, fruit bearing is focused on. The fruit that God produces in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what God wants to grow in us. This is what he's really concerned with, growing in your heart and in your life. So if, if we're looking to prosper in other ways, well, think of what Satan offered Jesus. What Satan offered Jesus was, one, Jesus hadn't eaten food in a long time, so he offered him food. But what, what Satan also offered Jesus was riches, kingdoms, position, and glory. If those are what we want, that, that's what Satan is going to feed us. That, that's what he's going to entice us with. But the fruit of the Spirit, the, the fruit that God seeks to produce in you is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if, if our aspiration is for material things, for things other than these things that God wants to cultivate and grow in us, we, along with our dreams, will eventually perish. Because Psalm 1 says that the way of the wicked will perish. We will not stand in the judgment. When we stand before Jesus to be judged, we will not stand. We will be like the chaff that blows away with the wind. We will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. We will not stand when it really matters. It's a hopeless reality. So, so there's this dynamic here what we get in Psalm 1 is that there is a ton of hopelessness, but there's even more good news because there's an answer to that hopelessness. There's hope that overwhelms the hopelessness. Okay, a few points of gospel application for us here. First of all, Jesus is the man. Jesus is the man. He didn't walk in the counsel of wicked. He graciously counsels the wicked. Okay? Think about that. We, we are the wicked, but he graciously calls us and counsels us. Jesus doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And, and can we acknowledge this is the easy thing to do, to stand in the way of sin and sinners? It is hard to say no to sin. This is what Jesus does. But he, he doesn't just say no. He doesn't just expose the evil reality of sin. What Jesus does is he becomes sin. The strong tree 
who is Jesus, became the withering tree so that we would be able to say no to sin and to grow up into strong trees that bear gospel fruit. That's what Jesus did. He is the man. Jesus didn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He made himself the historical target of scoffing for all of history. So even when we are scoffed, Jesus takes it on himself. If we see Jesus for who he is, if we know what he really thinks about us, we will want to delight in him. We will delight in him because who he is is otherworldly. It is so much better than anything else can offer to us. And here's the thing. If we don't know Jesus for who he is, if we don't understand what he says about us, and we find ourselves, we we look at God's law and and the idea, law being the whole of it, the promises and, and all of that, and we resent it, we don't want to delight in it, it doesn't draw us in any way, then then what it tells us is we're listening to Satan's lies. We're not listening to what Jesus, what God is saying through his word. We're listening to lies, be they cultural or whatever. We're giving ear to him. Our hearts are being drawn and shaped and persuaded by Satan's lies. So we need to be reminded Jesus is the man. Secondly, what this means then is we don't need to be. We don't need to be the man. We don't need to be the woman. We look at Adam and we see our own abject failure. Blessed isn't something for us to attain. If so, we would never find it. We are blessed through Jesus. We are blessed through Jesus. We find freedom in receiving blessing from him. So there's nothing for us to earn. We are forgiven. We are loved by God, who is the man. We are blessed through his work, not our own work. So we can rest in him. And and here's the thing. If we're trying to work hard to get blessing from God, it will tire us out and we will resent it. If we understand the gospel, if we understand that blessing comes not from our work, but through Jesus' work, when we didn't deserve it, what that then does is it compels us, it motivates us to want to work hard. And so we've got it, we've got to get this right, get the equation right. We don't work hard so that we can be blessed. We are blessed when we didn't deserve it. So that, and if we understand the whole dynamic around that, it will compel hard work for the gospel and for Jesus. All right, so lastly, the question, what are you standing in? What are you delighting in? I was a tax accountant for two tax seasons, and I hated it. Hated it. I hated having to read tax code. I hated having to know all of the tax laws. If the Christian faith was about delighting in all of the Old Testament law or the Ten Commandments, my commitment to it would be based only on obligation. I would begrudgingly show up. I would despise it. There would be no delight for me. But Jesus, the story that he tells, who he is, I can delight in Jesus. 
I see his sin-bearing sacrifice for my sins. I see him doing something I can't do on my own. I see the fruit that grows on the gospel tree. I, I want to be engaged in that and involved in that. I want Jesus to do that in my life. I see how he takes selfish people like me and like you and shows his patience and his love with us. And then he extends that patience and love through us to other people and draws others to himself as well. I see miracles happening as he takes spiritually dead people and he breathes life into them and he sustains them and he grows them in the gospel. I see that. And I want to be part of that. I can delight in Jesus. I see the endless hope of the gospel. Do you? Do you see that? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what's most important. What is of first importance? The gospel is what we must stand in. The gospel is where our, our, our delight depends on us standing in the gospel. So my call for us is to look to Jesus, the man on the cross and the savior of the world.